Thank you. So we're in 2 Corinthians. We've, we're taking a break from Daniel. We'll be returning to Daniel very, very shortly. Uh, but just having a breather. And this is a second part of a message that began last week. If you weren't here and if you were traveling the country, well, more fill you. Okay? <laughs> but for the rest of us, we're continuing where we left off last week. So we began with verses 3 to 7 of 2 Corinthians. And we had our first subheading, being comforted, comfort one another. Being comforted, comfort one another. We, we said that suffering, contrary to popular belief, is a part of God's design for his people. It's a part of God's design in a fallen world for his people. Acts 14, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That's what the word of God says. And Paul, in, in another letter to, to Thessalonica now, writes similar words, verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians. Poor uh, Jim read chapter 4. Here's chapter 3. So that no one may be unsettled by these trials that we face. You know quite, you know quite well that we were destined for them. That we would be persecuted. Friends, suffering is part of God's plan for our lives. He's not caught unawares and neither should we be. There's an inevitability about suffering. Whether we're Christian or, or yet to come to faith, suffering is a reality. And the key difference is this, that when we suffer as Christians, we suffer with Jesus, with him alongside us. So Christianity is not escapism. And if this is new to you, Christianity is not being presented as a means by which we escape suffering, but rather as a means by which we face suffering with a companion, with someone beside us. It's exactly what Jesus told his disciples. I don't know how you were called to faith, but I want to show you how Jesus called people to faith. He was absolutely candid. Listen to this in Matthew 16. These are would-be disciples that he's, that he's encouraging to come on his journey and train. And this is what he says to them in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I want you to consider for a moment what Jesus is saying to these would-be disciples. Let me ask you, what is he saying? Take up his cross. What's Jesus saying to these would-be disciples by those words? Someone tell me. Die to self. So that's where we go. Let me take one step further back. It's getting to die to self. You're now in first century Palestine. What does this phraseology mean? Yeah. Take up your cross meant you picked up a wooden beam and you carried it to the place of execution, and you knew, and anyone watching you walk past their window knew you were not returning. It meant denying yourself. It meant an end to life as we know it. And friends, here's a challenge. If that's how Jesus called people to faith, 
How would we call people to faith? There needs to be candidness, doesn't there? There needs to be reality that a call to faith is not escapism. In fact, don't we know that the reality of coming to faith includes, is more likely to put us into persecution, conflict, adversity. And so the gospel we are selling, friends, isn't come to Jesus for a wonderful life. Now that is the package, that is the finale, that is the future. For Jim's wife, and for everyone's wife who knows God, and for all of us. But the journey to there is a call to faith. This sermon is going to be three minutes longer because I never started the countdown. Okay, it's only just started. So don't blame me, blame technology, okay? Right, so Christianity, authentic Christianity, is a life given over voluntarily to suffering in Jesus' plan for our lives. And so Paul tells this small church in Corinth, you know, New Testament churches, contrary to what we imagined, were just this size, by and large. But there were many of them dotted around. So Paul tells his small church that he planted in Corinth, in Greece. You can walk the city today. He tells them this and he tells them about the inevitability of suffering and seeing suffering not as an end in itself, but as an opportunity. Have you ever faced suffering <laughs> as an opportunity? Listen to this, verse 3. Praise, the God, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and of all comfort. And verse 4. Uh, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Suffering is, says Paul, an opportunity. Seriously. An opportunity so that in finding comfort, we said last week, didn't we, that suffering God's response to suffering isn't always to pull us out of it. What do we do when we face crisis? God, get me out of here. No. But God often provides, we said, didn't we? Palliative care. He doesn't pull us out of it always. But pulls himself into it. Comes alongside us in it. And walks us through it. And having done that, friends, what it does for us is to put us through the school of suffering and brings us through that so that we're qualified, able to sit with others through their suffering. You see, it's only when we have faced the hardship of making ends meet, it's only as we've struggled to pay the next bill. It's only as we faced unemployment that we're able to sit with someone who's going through that and to talk them through that and to point them to Jesus through that and to carry them through that. You see, being comforted, it was last week's sermon, just for you uh, waggers. We call them a school waggers, you know, those people who are away when they should be there. Yeah, you know, that's for you waggers, okay? That this, that's, that's last week's message, that being comforted. We can comfort one another. That's God's logic. Logic one. But logic two, there's more. And that's today. Number two. Through adversity, 
through adversity, fully rely on God. Through adversity, fully rely on God. Verses 8 to 10. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. The province of Asia, it's modern-day Turkey. It was once the hub of Christian activity. Those churches in Revelation, all there in Turkey. But today... Just 2,000 years on. But it didn't even take that long. Today, it's an Islamic state. Once the hub of Christian activity, it's now an Islamic state. Look, friends, it serves us as a warning what's happened there in Turkey. Look, Jesus did say, Matthew 16, I will build my church. Amen. But that promise isn't to every local assembly. You see, for a local assembly to have longevity, to continue, to have its place and position in this world, it must be faithful to Jesus and to his gospel. Or else, Jesus will shut us down, friends. And let me tell you this. The devil has never closed the church in all his existence. How could he? There's only one person who possesses the keys to the church and it's the Lord of the church. And the Lord of the church shuts down churches. That's the whole warning going on in Revelations 2 and 3. And the call therefore is, if Rivergate is to have any future, the call is faithfulness to Christ and faithfulness to his gospel. It's that mantra that will give Rivergate its future and its prosperity and its success. Faithfulness to Christ, faithfulness to his gospel, whatever the cost, whatever the cost, may God enable us to be faithful to that cause. It's then that we'll know Jesus' promise that I will build my church. Now that's something during Paul's early evangelism, friends, in the province that he was in. That, that's something that Paul realized and taught himself. Look, he's in a situation here. He's under great persecution. He possibly has Timothy with him. We're not sure who he's with, but he's facing great trial for the church, for the faith. Listen again. We're under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. We despair even of life. In our hearts, we felt the sentence of death and all that Paul needed to do to alleviate his suffering is say no to Jesus, no to the gospel and returned to his former way of life, and yet he continued in that. Look, I don't know if you're anything like me. Look, you know when you fish, not that I'm a fisherman, I've done some fishing, and you catch a fish this little, and it's somehow in the conversation, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it ends up being this big. Yeah? You know about that, Brenton? Yeah? 
<laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that shark that attacked you last time you fished. It was a little tinkler, really. Paul is not prone to exaggeration. And so when he says, when he says, look, these great pressures, okay, beyond their ability to endure, despair and the sentence of death, he is not exaggerating, friends. Look, this is the guy who can say later in this very book, our light and momentary troubles. Next one. Okay. Here's a guy who's not prone to exaggeration. Okay, so when he suggests that he was under the sentence of death, this is real. This is some form of attack towards Paul and his companions for nothing other than preaching Jesus. For nothing other than encouraging men and women to faith. And as a consequence of this, he is facing certain death. He's facing the curtailment of his passion. What's Paul's passion? The gospel to the Gentiles, to the Roman Empire, to the eastern part of the empire that he was reaching out to, Paul sensed that his enthusiasm for mission was about to be cut short by his imminent death. He faced a reality, friends, that gospel workers face, that adversity is a reality of our existence as Christians. And may will cut our lives short if God permits it. One of the things I was hoping to do every day coming to Australia is play golf. I haven't quite realised that dream yet. <laughs> We're working towards it, yeah? Yeah? Once a month. Oh, okay, that'll do. Once a month will do. Look, when you, if you play any golf, you know, look... Look, the thing about golf is you end up, you end up, okay, that's not a self-portrait. That's Johan. I'm taking a picture of Johan, okay? <laughs> Look, you end up in the rough, in the sand, yeah? Because the thing about golf, you end up in the sand and you pull yourself together, you jump out and you encourage one another by, another by saying, brother, it can't get any worse until the next tee. And you pull out the driver. And then you realise, in golf at least, it can always get worse. Seriously. Okay? Friends, here's a reality. When we face adversity, it can get worse. And it does get worse sometimes. But in, in getting to that state, and in, in becoming that, Paul is, Paul is telling us, friends, that others have gone there before us and faced it. Paul faced what we face and more. He's been there. Not just Paul, many of our friends around the world have been there. And many of them, are you aware of this? That, that every year over 180,000 people face persecution to death pay the ultimate price for Christ you see in the Christian journey our adversity if God calls us to it can be worse back in 2008 I don't know if you got the reports here but in Orissa India do you remember that was that shed here over 500 
Christian brothers and sisters, our family, were murdered by fundamentalists for their faith. And friends, so here's the message for us, that when we face adversity, we share a camaraderie with brothers and sisters around the world who've been there and been much further than perhaps any of us ever will. We share fellowship across time with brothers and sisters who'd faced adversity and persecution and even death. And we walk in the footsteps of those early first apostles. Have you ever thought of your suffering in those terms? That when you suffer for Jesus, that you're walking in the steps of the greatest Christians ever to have lived? With the Apostle Paul, with Peter, you in suffering walk with Peter and with John imprisoned in Patmos and with Timothy killed and beheaded in India and with every other person who's faced suffering. You have fellowship in suffering. You do not walk alone. And here's the the truth, friends. However much we may not want to face it, Paul tells the Philippian church, but also that we've been called to believe in him, not just to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. God is not absent in suffering. He calls us into suffering and then calls himself into that suffering and walks with us. If you ever feel alone, friends, have you ever fe- we feel alone, don't we? We know what loneliness is like. Let me tell you when you are never alone is when you're in suffering. Never is Jesus closer to his people than when we face suffering. We, we, we know that old uh, poem that was written, Footprints in the Sand. Do you guys quote that here? When was God closest to that character? When he was in the mud and the mire. And that's the truth here, friends, that when we are at our lowest, when we are at our wit's end, when we face death, it's then, not that God has abandoned us, it's then that he's closest to us. And here's why, here's why, and here's the logic. Listen to this. This happened. Why does God put us through it? Why do we face it? Why do we come to our wit's end? Here's the logic. This happened, says Paul. I know, says Paul, because I've experienced it, says Paul. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead so that we may know a power that's beyond ourselves, that we may be connected more strongly to a God who can carry us through. That's the logic, says Paul. This happened, I'm in this, I nearly lost my life, says Paul, so that I, who you think is great, but really, says Paul, I'm just one of you, so that I may learn to take hold of Jesus more strongly. That's what Paul faced it. The great apostle having to learn through suffering to hold God more tightly. 
And that is the logic, friends. He learned that through adversity, he learned to fully rely on God through adversity. Here's what the Tyndale commentary writes on on suffering. Paul perceived that one of the divine purposes involved when Christians are plunged into afflictions is to teach dependence on God. We don't learn in the classroom, friends. We learn most and best when we're in real life. Do you know, I, I've been to Bible college, in, in case you think I haven't. It probably looks like I haven't, but I have. I've been to Bible college. That's not where I learned pastoring. It was in the field, in real life, in the city, next to a dear lady about to pass from this world into eternity. That's the school that Jesus calls us into. That's the school that Paul faced. And he faced it so that he may learn to rely more fully on God. And just like, remember Abraham, when he was about to offer Isaac uh, to God? What was his logic when he did that? Can anyone remember his logic when he was about to murder his own son? He could raise him up. And Paul is doing precisely that. Listen to Paul. 2 Corinthians 11, 25. Uh, sorry. Uh, verse 14, rather, of Acts, no, uh, Acts 14. Let me read these words to you. Uh, and I will go back to 2 Corinthians 11. Three times I was beaten with a rod. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day at open sea. Paul had faced, friends, the very reality that he, of death. Someone tell me about stoning. What condition would you expect to be left in if you were stoned in first century Israel? Dead. They weren't throwing pebbles at you. They were throwing big boulders. So when Paul says in Corinthians that, that God is able to raise him from the dead, Paul is talking about real experience of facing perhaps certain death. Perhaps even death. Look, this may be new to you. Have you ever thought perhaps Paul was persecuted to death in his ministry? Let me take you to Acts 14, 19, what I misquoted earlier, Acts 14, 19. Some of the Jews from Antioch came and Iconium came and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Let me ask you. This man has just been stoned. They drag him outside the city. Why would they think he was dead? Because they, they intended to kill him. They intended to destroy him. They intended to take his life. Now, at what juncture would they have stopped stoning him? When they thought he was dead. And so they dragged him out of the city. Do you think they would have left him out of the city if they thought he was still breathing? I think there's a very real possibility, friends. I don't want to go beyond the text here but I think there's a very real possibility that the Apostle Paul was assassinated for the gospel. And then? And then? Resurrected to life to preach it again. Hallelujah! And so that's Paul's point in Corinthians, friends, in, in 2 Corinthians, his point is that, friends, that this happened to me that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. Paul may have been speaking from experience that he knew 
that nothing could hinder the proclamation and work of the gospel, that we did not need to fear even death, because if God has got a plan for our lives, not even death can curtail it. Not even death can stop it, because if necessary, God will raise you back to life so that you can fulfill your purpose for him. And on that confidence, Paul says, we face death. Because not even death can subdue God's plan for your life, Christian. Let me tell you, nothing but nothing can stand between God and your destiny in Jesus. Nothing. And even if necessary, God, friends, will breathe new life into you. Do you remember that occasion? I, I think it's hilarious when Paul is speaking and speaking, and you think I speak long, you should invite him to your church. Okay, he's speaking all evening, right? And this guy's sitting on the windowsill, going increasingly drowsy until he falls off, and he falls to his death. What does Paul do? Goes down and says, praise for him, resurrects him, so that he can listen to Paul more. <laughs> Have you ever think, really? He resurrects him, puts him back in the windowsill, and then preaches more. I'm like, Paul, don't you get the message? He can't take anymore. <laughs> Friends, there is no limit to the extent of God's power to fulfill his purposes for you, for me, for his church. Here's what the New Bible Commentary says on this. Reliance upon God rather than upon one's own native ability is of fundamental importance in the Christian life. Yet such an attitude does not come naturally. It's true, isn't it? What do we discover about kids from the earliest age, the minute they can start speaking and you, and you try and do something for them? I do it. <laughs> exactly those words. I do it. This self-confidence is an inbuilt feature of human nature as a consequence of the fall. And God has to train it out of us friends. And he does it through his school of suffering. He does it because he loves us friends. It's an act of mercy. Can, you, can we possibly conceive that God calls us into suffering as an act of grace, as an act of love, as an act of favor towards us? Friends, and here's the reality that perhaps the only reason I am a minister of the gospel today, and the only reason that you Lorraine are walking with Jesus today and you Gabriel are still continuing in discipleship with Jesus today is because of the sufferings that Jesus has called you into those very sufferings we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't want to hear it those very sufferings are the things that have kept us in check kept us in reliance kept us coming back to church, kept us in prayer, kept us in the word, kept us in the faith. If truth be told, if it wasn't for some of the challenges in my life, I may be out there today. 
anywhere but here. So God used his friends. The torture and the pain and the suffering and the humiliation and, and, and everything that comes with suffering to keep us, keep us in the faith. Hayden is a, is a friend of mine from South Wales, the real South Wales. Down in the area, not that... Yeah, 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 yeah. Not that new one. The real, the original South Wales, okay? Okay? This is Hayden. This is a book that he's written. That was him as a 16-year-old. Do you know Arsenal? You, I know you guys love British football. You know Arsenal, don't you? He had, at the age of 16, a month's trial with Arsenal to play for their team. Just three weeks before the trial, he's out with his, with his mates drinking heavily. They decide to get into a car and they're driving along until they hit a tree. The car goes down a steep bank. Two of the men die. Hayden escapes with a broken neck and paralysis. Over the next few years, he, he spent months and years in and out of hospital. Learned to live in a wheelchair. Only through, they told him he'd never walk. But he learned to get some movement through sheer determination. At 21, he was finally given some compensation for, for, for these injuries. Became a millionaire overnight virtually and wasted a lot on more drinking and fast cars and fast girls and gambling and everything else that comes with it. With it. Eventually, he met his wife, Carla. He settled down, got married. Three years later, he had a child when they told him he'd never have a child. At the age of 30, Hayden tells you that his life was in a complete mess of working and drinking and drinking and working until eventually his wife invited him to a church because he just didn't want to go. He was told that there's, that, that there's amazing grace for him and he thought that was a woman. And he said when he, when he got there and, and they had communion, he thought they were stingy, just serving one piece of bread and a tiny bit of juice. This is a completely unchurch guy. And then these old people invited him to a prayer meeting and he thought, goodness sake, what do I want to do with old people? Okay. I know. Boy, let me stand away. Okay, what would I? Right, okay. He goes, he went along just, just, just because he didn't want to say no to this lovely lady. You know, smile like Denise's. Right, so he went along and he goes, he thought he'd just go in there for half an hour, you know, just to please them and then go off to the pub afterwards. He goes, he was there till 2 a.m. He couldn't get enough of this woman and what she was telling him about Jesus. And at 2 a.m. he left, believing in his heart that there may well be a God. He woke up in the morning and for whatever reason he doesn't know, he went along to church with his wife Carla. And when he got there, he said it was like the minister was reading out his life story. And Hayden faced God on his knees, came to faith and began walking with Jesus. And this is what he says in his book. This is an extract from his book. And this is, these are Hayden's own words. I want you to listen to this. Life is still hard though. And sometimes people say to me, this God that you serve can't be so great uh, as you say, Hayden. Otherwise he wouldn't let you suffer as you do. Why doesn't he heal you? And Hayden responds, he says, this is what he says to them. I would not change a thing. I would prefer to be in the pain every day that I am in rather than not be a Christian and would willingly go through it all again if that is what it took. 
Suffering is only for a short while. And as a, as a woman suffers in labor just for a short while and then finds a baby, so I know that my suffering is temporary. I will soon be in heaven where there is much more things to look forward to. It continues. I love telling everybody, I love telling everybody about Jesus. And when I'm doing that, I forget about the pain because I'm so thrilled with the news I am sharing. I have never prayed to be healed. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Do you hear that? I have never prayed to be healed. I believe that I can only be of use to God in the condition that I am. I can only fully rely on God and be dependent on him when I'm in this condition. Hayden knows and is in that condition still today that through adversity and suffering and pain that he walks closely with God. And it's only that that wheelchair and that pain that keeps him from the pub, from the lads, from the world, from pursuing dreams and losing Jesus. You see, he learned through adversity to fully rely on God. I want to leave that with you, friends. I'm coming to a close now. And as I close, I want to leave you with this, friends. That as urgent as it may seem to us to shake off the shackles of our own suffering and to shake our fists at God for neglecting us in suffering. Let Hayden speak to you. Let Paul speak to you. Would you hear this word that I'm speaking to you this morning? That God is using our trials, our losses, our sufferings, our pains, our plex uh, perplexing scenarios to keep us engaged and dependent on him. Listen to this, Romans 8. Listen to this. Here's God's gift to his church. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Can I say this without offending you? That if we do not share in his suffering, that we do not share in his glory. That the glory of Jesus comes through the suffering with Jesus. Are we suffering? We have fellowship with Christians around the world, Christians through time, the greatest Christians ever to have lived. But more greatly, when we suffer, we stand in fellowship with the Lord. He knows. He's been there. He's felt it. He experienced it. And so he promises, friends, he promises through his word, listen to this in 2 Corinthians, that God is able to make all grace abound to you. When we feel that we are at our wit's end and we can't continue a moment longer, Jesus extends to us a package of help and it's called all 
grace. It contains everything that you need to persevere in faith to the end of your journey in this world. That comes to you most pertinently and powerfully when you're in affliction and torment and suffering and anguish for Jesus and in Jesus. Through adversity, Paul tells us, fully rely on God. Amen.